Hello, you are listening to the Plumfield Moms, and this is Plumfield in Person. Hi, I'm Diane Pendergraft. I'm here with Sarah Masaryk. Today, we're with the BiblioGuides ladies again for another book club. So we have Sarah Kim here, and Tanya Arnold, and Lara Yeverino. We are thrilled to welcome you to the first of three Mist Mantle book clubs that we're going to do in rapid succession. So this book club is to support a book club discussion we're having in the BiblioGuides Mighty Network. And anybody can join. It's free. And we hope you'll come over there. We hope you'll listen to this and then join us over there for the discussion. Or if you've never read the Mismantle books, you can listen for a minute. We'll tell you when to stop so that you don't get any spoilers. You can go read the book and then join us in the Mighty Networks and come back and listen to this once you've read. So this book club discussion is part of a series that we are doing called the Plumfield Reads Book Club. It's at the BiblioGuides Mighty Network. They very generously host us to come in there and have these little back and forth discussions, both on and off the air. We want you to join us in that. And we want you to know that the books that we have selected this year for these book clubs are books that we love. We think they're excellent and worthy, but we think they're complex. And we think that they may not be perfect for everybody in every season. So we beg you, Mamas, listen to this, pre-read the book. You know your family best. You know your babies and you know what they're ready for and when they're ready for it. We also invite you to listen to our two-part interview with Margie McAllister, the author of the Mismantle books, so you can have a better sense of who she is and what she was writing and why she was writing it and how she allows her writing to stretch our children, give them growth rings, but never wound them. So Tanya, Sarah, Lara, thank you so much for reading with us, for being here, for hosting us, and for being our compatriots in this discussion. We're so glad to have you here. So ladies, this is a book that I knew nothing about nine months ago. And Jill Morgan said, Sarah, I am pretty sure you're going to love this book. Let me send you this book. And she did. And I devoured it. I read it out loud to my kids and I promptly begged her to send me the second one and told her I needed them all. (laughs) So now I've had the joy of reading all five Miss Mantle books. Diane is partway through book three and you ladies have each only read the first one. That'll be great for discussion today because we will represent people in the different stages in the journey of Miss Mantle. Right. So Tanya, Sarah, Lara, what was your first experience with Miss Mantle? How did you first hear about it? Because Diane, you, you found out about it through me. Is that right? Yes. Okay. I would say that I first heard about it possibly a year to two years ago, with just a lot of chatter online and various Facebook groups. And I read it the first time about that time. I, my eight-year-old was six-ish, seven-ish at the time, my youngest. And then I just did a reread this week. Mm, Nice. I probably heard about it at the same time and found them at resale shops. It was before I saw the Purple House Press reprints and picked them up, but hadn't read them till about a month ago. Mm, Nice. 
I just did a quick check and it looks like I purchased these books in 2019. So it's been a few years mm-hmm. and my son Kwanu devoured them. So he must have been probably early 10 when he read them and he read the whole series and I hadn't read them. I wanted to, he said they were so good. Mm. So I finally read the first book. Yeah. Just in this last month. Yay. I am very surprised. I had never heard of these. These are my kind of book. Um, there's a lot of books I don't know about and I'm, I love how many times I'm discovering books I've never known about. It really surprised me, surprises me that with the age of these books that I had never heard of them. I've, you know, I've heard of Redwall. Obviously I know and love Narnia and this fits kind of in, in that kind general area or category. And I just never heard of these. Diane, you'd never heard of these either, right? No, no. So the one thing that I think parents are going to be asking about, and this is, you kind of spoke to this at the beginning. Why are we, why are we talking about this book? And it's because there are some hard things here and mm-hmm. we think it's important and we think it's worthwhile And parents are going to ask, who is this book right for? And Mm -hmm. I have been thinking and thinking and thinking (laughs) about that. And the answer is in the book, which is powerful. So I just kept thinking it's important for parents and mamas maybe to come read those reviews, listen maybe to this episode, read the book, and then decide when is right because there is a right time. And this is what Fur says to Padra. He says, you must wait for the right moment, Padra. Will there ever be a right moment, said Padra. There is a right moment for everything, said Fur, like tides and fishing. And so I think the right time for your kid, you will know. Yes. I have an eight-year-old. It's not the right time for her. This this would be too heavy for her right now. I have a 22-year-old who at eight, this could have been the right book for her. Right. Be aware of what's in it. Be ready to have great discussions and then find the right time for your kid. And I think that's true of almost any book. There's a lot of books that are just beautiful and lovely and you can just read to your children. But a lot of books, there is a great time to read them. I feel that about the Growly books. Maybe Mm -hmm. one day we'll have some book clubs about them. I think there's a right time for the Growly books. I think there's a right time for some of the classics. Mm -hmm. I don't think if you don't hit it right in that right time, it matters. But I think we should be cautious of giving too much to children too soon. Don't rush it. There's plenty of time for all the good things. And I want to just add to that, that I think there's a big difference between turning your child loose on a book that you have not read and are not prepared to discuss with them and reading it with them. So when it, oops, (laughs) (laughs) but I think, I think he was just fine. And he would have told you if he wasn't, you know, my children have many times come to me and said, mom, I don't think this is the right book for me. And I appreciate that. And I respect that when that happens. I think that there's something to be said for when it is the right time for your child. It might be the right time for them sooner if you're reading it with them and later if you're not able to read it with them. So mamas, we beg you, if it's at all possible, pre-read this book and you decide. And for moms that are concerned, I would say that this book it, I think that the darkness and the hardness of each of the other books is about on par with this one. They're just different. But I beg you to read our reviews because there may be things that trigger in you different things. For example, the third book, the real 
villain of the third book is the disease of mental illness. And if you have a lot of mental illness in your family or in your life, you might want to handle that book differently. So read the reviews and read the books ahead of time if you can. So let's start with what we love about the book. But when we're going to just, this discussion is just going to talk about the first book. And let's keep this question spoiler free so that people who are listening can get a little taste of it. And then when we switch into talking about some of the other issues, we'll be clear to mark that as being ready for spoilers. So who wants to start? I'll just say that I heard about them from you and you were loving them and reading them to your kids and canceling school to read the whole <laughs> books in one day and that kind of thing. And I understand, I admit that your taste is usually good. And if you tell me I like a book, I probably will, though you're careful about that. I am because you don't like to be told that you might like a book. Then you just right. kind of defiantly choose not to. Right. <laughs> but I'm thinking, oh, new fantasy world, talking animals, not really thrilled about this. Maybe I would feel differently if I still had kids at home and that kind of thing. So I wasn't really excited about reading it. And what I appreciated most, I think, was that I did become interested in the story and cared about the characters because anybody can try to write a fantasy world with talking animals or whoever you want it to be and get so focused on on trying to do that that they forget about developing characters. And so... Mm-hmm. At the end, I did care about them and wanted to read the rest of them and see what happened. I think that's remarkable. <laughs> Diane's, <laughs> really Diane's is. <laughs> gold seal is remarkable. <laughs> Ladies, what about you guys? So I think what I liked the most was how much the story drew me in. And I think that just atmosphere of the island and the place that the book takes place. It was a place I would have wanted to visit and yeah and check out and maybe even live in there was a lot of hard things going on but there was a sense of beauty and goodness in the people of the island how much they loved their king you could tell that there was like a history there of of peace and goodness and the world i actually i you know i i love fantasy i don't mind magic and fantasy all of that but there's not really any magic in this book. Mm-hmm. It's a, it's obviously talking animals. It's, mm-hmm. it's a fantasy world. But all the characters, all the animals behave like they would be, behave in our world, except that they talk. Mm-hmm. And there's no extra powers given to them. It really focuses on it's their choices that determines their, uh, how, how they end up in the story, whether they choose good or whether they choose evil. And that really shows up over and over again in the book. And I, I really just loved how that uh, came through in the story. It reminded me of, I think one of, you know, I'm a Charlotte Mason mama, one of Charlotte Mason's <laughs> uh, principles. She said, therefore children should be taught as they become mature enough to understand such teaching that the chief responsibility which rests on them as persons is the acceptance or rejection of ideas. And I just felt like the choices that the characters made, it really showed that whether they'd accepted the idea, a good idea or a bad one, and let it become who they were. And it, it really influenced who who they were and what their character was like. And so I think those were my favorite aspects of the story. I love that, Sarah. And I love how you connected that with Charlotte. So I'm kind of a 
words person. Mm -hmm. And I thought her descriptions were very sensory, Mm -hmm. kind of centered, like you could feel it, you could smell it, you could taste it, you could hear it. And, and it, it made stepping into that other world easy and inviting and, um, kind of like Sarah said, a place you'd want to visit and, and real here, you're trying to, you know, accept a fantasy world where animals are speaking and have characteristics and things. And the descriptions are vivid enough that you, that's an easy, an easy transition to make. And so you get quickly lost in that world and you accept it for it, what it is. Yeah. I love that. And I, I actually told Marky that I think she needs a cookbook and I'd be happy to help her with that. <laughs> I said, you, you make a cookbook and I'll help you. And then we'll take pictures of making all the recipes <laughs> uh, because the, she uses food so much. So speaking to your comment about sensory, I think that you really begin to feel the book right away when you're in first tower and he's making you a, a cup of warm cordial immediately you're like, Oh, I, I get what this is. I can feel the fire. I can taste the cordial. I feel like I'm really there. Right. I agree. Being in South Florida, I miss the seasons. Mm-hmm. And I, I think you felt the seasons in this, like yeah. it felt like whether it was or not fall at some point when you're reading this book. <laughs> yes. So. Right. Yeah, because they're in nature. So it matters so much to them. Mm-hmm. We, we've, we're kind of used to being able to ignore that a lot, but they can't, they're actually living in it. <laughs> right. Well, in the fifth book is the rage tide and it is the sea. And you know what, anybody who lives in a hurricane state they're going to really relate to the fifth book, feeling what happens when the sea comes and beats down your doors and you have to batten down and you have to have places, stronghold places in order to, um, to wait out the storm. So yeah, nature is really central in these stories. Tanya, what about you? Yeah, I think one of the things I probably loved the most, one of kind of point to something that Sarah said earlier is that it is a fantastical world Mm -hmm. because you have elements that make the island unique and you have these talking animals, but there isn't anything extraordinary or magical in it. So it kind of walks that line, but the power of it, I think, is the themes that you see in our uh, universal human themes that you would see in Shakespeare. Mm -hmm. And I saw that right away. I, I love that Margie shared that in the podcast that, that she brought in themes from both Macbeth and Othello, which Sarah, I was telling you that I saw Othello in here. Yes. And, and so you see those themes of um, hunger and thirst for power and Mm -hmm. greed Mm -hmm. and love and sacrifice playing out really uh, powerfully and, and sometimes very subtly. Mm-hmm. And I think if you were a mama who you've maybe read some really great retellings of Shakespeare previously to your child, they would see those things. Right. And if you hadn't, when you did, or when you started to approach Shakespeare, they would see the connections really powerfully. So it could even be preparatory to reading some Shakespeare because you could read Macbeth. And I, I have to say, I read Macbeth, I reread Macbeth about two years ago with my teenagers it's been a long time since I read Othello, 
Um, but the pieces that really connected here, I thought, wow, it's <laughs> really good, really well done. I really loved it. I, I really marvel at the Englishness of Margie. And so the Englishness of this book, Shakespeare is just in the blood of the English in a way that we Americans desire to have, but it's just not as cultural for us, I think. And so I think even without meaning to, they are very Shakespearean. <laughs> and I say that as the highest praise, you know, there are things about our American experience that are really different that you just feel that like, one of the things I like about N.D. Wilson's 100 Cupboards books, or I love about Sam Smith's and Josiah Smith's new Jack Zulu book is it has that Wizard of Oz feel that's just totally Americana. You just can't, you know, baseball in the cornfields, it's American. And I feel like with, with a lot of really great British authors, you're getting that Shakespearean foundation. That's where it grows out of Shakespeare. As far as Shakespeare goes, I thought one of the fun things was where it says, fear nothing until squirrels fly through the skies. Oh, Macbeth. But sometimes references like that in other stories can seem really contrived. Oh, she stole that from Shakespeare. Mm -hmm. But it fits and it's very natural. But we also, if we think back to, this is exactly how in Greek mythology, they would do like the Oracle at Delphi was always telling people something that wasn't quite exactly true or exactly clear. And so they were able to interpret it however they wanted to. And it almost always got them into trouble. And this is Correct. the same kind of thing. Oh, well, squirrels are never going to fly. So I don't have anything to be afraid of. Trees are never going to walk. So I don't have anything to be afraid of. So it's really Shakespeare was borrowing as well. So it's not like if we borrow from Shakespeare, um, you know, it's not an original idea. There aren't <laughs> well, any original there aren't ideas. Any. <laughs> there is nothing new under the sun. <laughs> yeah, the Greeks were using this. <laughs> I loved that twist. I loved, like you say, I love the fact that she was able to use a gift of prophecy or a, a prophetic gift and make it seem impossible. But of course we know this because we've read enough books to know that a right. prophecy never means nothing. Mm -hmm. It always means something. And so we're waiting for it. Like, how are they going to fly? <laughs> I have to just add an antidote. My, we have a brand new puppy. Her name is Cedar. She is named for a central character of the mismantle books, starting in book two. So you don't meet her in this book. And she figured out how to get up on the couch today. So my big dogs are less than impressed that Cedar can now jump up onto the couch. But I have three couches, so they're fine. So they're like, okay, fine. She got up on that couch. There was a pillow there. No big deal. And then she runs across the couch and she leaps to the next couch. And I'm like, it's, it's totally Urchin and Crispin and all the squirrels running up the tower and flying in and out of windows. <laughs> Oh, so <laughs> well, I love how Margie keeps the animals to their what they would naturally do. Like they have a castle and they can go up the stairs, but they can also just go out the window and climb down the wall if they want to. <laughs> okay, yeah, a squirrel would do that. Uh, so she's really careful about that, but it's also not contrived. One of the things I get frustrated with about a lot of the fantasy writers is that they're really look over here. I'm creating a world. Mm. Don't forget that you're not in your world. See this element here. Isn't yeah. that creative of me? Mm. Don't forget that I'm making this up. And 
it's just, this one just happens. And so to me, that's a good fantasy where you can just, it just happens and you don't have to keep going. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Different world, different world. I feel like that's the case in Narnia. I feel like that's the case in Brandon Sanderson's Elantris. I feel like it's the case in Lewis's till we have faces. You just enter into a world that just feels completely real and natural. Like you belong there. Like you literally just had to go through the cupboard to get there. Ranger's Apprentice is like that too. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. <laughs> the other thing that felt different from other books was that in this world, they also had their own deity and religious practices. Yes. And I don't, I don't think that's very common. I'm trying to think of another series where I've felt that or seen it quite like it's done in this book. And I can't exactly think of one where there's a clear deity that they pray to um, that there's blessings, um, that they ask for help from. I was thinking of the Silmarillion where you have Ulvatar Mm -hmm. and, you know, um, I can't even say all the names of the God, (laughs) you know, God and the angels and things, but there they have a a deity system. That's felt unique in a children's book though. Yes. Yes. And I loved it because a lot of children's books will have themes of good versus evil. And this one definitely has that, but you have this, this religious component of a deity, the aspect of good versus evil feels a little bit different to me in this story than in other things I've read. And I really liked it. Like I was a little wowed by it. Like it was a breath of fresh air to have a child be able to experience that just kind of in a different way, you know, like without comparing it to a religion, like I'm not saying it's any specific religion, but you can them practicing this and how that plays out and what it means kind of back to what Sarah had said about that they get to make their own choices and seeing which which way they choose I thought it was beautiful actually it's also very gentle and natural I can't think of any specific examples but sometimes when they do bring that element in they have to get all weird about it Mm -hmm. and and this is very familiar even you you know who the heart is you Mm -hmm. know um Mm -hmm. It wasn't like she had to build an entire religion that was strange and scary or anything like that. And you didn't have to have demons involved and um, none of the creepy stuff that's very tempting. I think a lot of times for writers who are creating other worlds and want to put a religion in, there's usually a lot of the creepy stuff and it wasn't like that at all. So it's very safe and not um, misleading for children. I think, I think they're going to understand it like you do Aslan. You know, kids know who Aslan is. Yeah. You don't have to work hard. As soon as you say Aslan, you get it. It's beautiful to know that Margie is a professed Christian. She's a liturgical Christian. And she says in her interview with us that she subscribes to sort of a Celtic spirituality, but it is, it is Christian, but it has these earthier tones to it. And you feel those things, I think in this book, but I think it's lovely for any reader to be able to read this book and really just rejoice in the comfort that the heart and brother fur bring. But I think it's also wonderful for Christian readers to feel like this is a story they can read and feel as if it is representative to of their own experience without challenging their religious experience in an adverse way, without making it like, I think of the five of us on here, I don't think any of us subscribe to exactly the same 
uh, Christian belief system. I think we all have different religious traditions inside of our general Christian beliefs. But all of us find this book to be comforting and true. I think that that's masterful, that she was able to make all readers feel included, respected, cherished, safe, and loved, and yet also still tell something that's really fundamentally true. I think that is masterful. And I think for me, that was the biggest hook, was that this is not just a story that's charming. This is a story that's substantial. And so I think with this, we're going to segue into things that are probably going to end up having spoilers. So if you're not interested in hearing spoilers yet, just bookmark this episode and come back to it once you've read. If you're okay with spoilers, great. Or if you've already read, keep listening. I just want to segue to say, this is where I think the character of Husk is so fascinating. Lara, we were talking yesterday and you said you were expecting the Padra, Crispin and Husk to be the three musketeers. I think we all were, right? You, you see those three and you're like, three squirrels with swords. This is going to be great. Oh, well, Padra's I'm, not a squirrel, but. <laughs> they even had D'Artagnan in Urchin. I mean, right, there exactly. was a little extra one. <laughs> exactly. So it really set you up. <laughs> yeah. So you're thinking, oh, she, she borrows heavily from the classics. This will be great. This is going to be a three musketeers romping, rollicking adventure. And then it's not. (laughs) I was so impressed with the way that she drew Husk's character and how we get to see, our children get to, to witness how Husk's worship of evil not only corrupted his heart, but corrupted his mind, made him insane. I think, like we said in the interview with Margie, you make it very clear that you don't play loose and fast with evil. You don't get halfway deals with evil. Evil is all or nothing. And I think that this is a great opportunity for our children to walk in the shoes of that character and see what the consequences are. Without it being didactic, I think it's mentoring. So I found that to be one of the things that just won me over in a big way because I felt like this is, this is powerful. It has very, this has meat to it. Do you showed Husk choosing evil over and over again? Like he mm-hmm. had opportunities, his inner voice, when he enters that dark place says, still whispers to him, turn back. And he makes the choice every time to continue the path that he's on. And it gets harder and harder for him to choose anything else, which is just so realistic. It is. I think this reminded me a little bit of Tolkien where nobody could play around with the ring and not be affected by it. Mm-hmm. And then the one who goes underground and hoards the ring ends up completely corrupted and Gollum. And we have the same thing happening with Husk. But for me, it did feel at first a little out of left field. For I was really shocked by Husk being the bad guy. But then I think Afterwards, like you said, he had multiple opportunities to make a different decision. Um, You see the other characters did make better choices and then ended up having more resilience in their life. They could withstand more because even though the evil was still around them, they were making the right choices that gave them strength inside. Oh, I love that. Yes, absolutely. 
So back to what Lara had said in the beginning of the story, the reader is kind of drawn into an understanding that Crispin and Padra and Husk were all childhood friends. Yes. And so that's kind of what you're expecting where it's going to go. And then as you start to meet Husk, the pacing of the story paces really well, I felt, mm-hmm. and evenly, the pace is even throughout this throughout the book. And so you quickly find out that Husk has really been seduced by darkness and he's craving it and desires it, even though, like Sarah said, he keeps having these opportunities, he keeps choosing into it. But as you get further into the story, you start getting more of his backstory. I think she should write a prequel. I'm just going to say that on the side, because I think a prequel for a lot of reasons would be really phenomenal (laughs) to the story. So I'm just going to put that out there, but you start getting the backstory and you find out about his first kill. And so it becomes really obvious that Husk wasn't just born this way. He wasn't just evil inherently, and he wasn't just an evil person to begin with. There was a first kill. And then there was a choice and a choice and a choice and a choice. And it led him to where he was, which again, that to me is similar to Macbeth. He made some choices and those choices kept leading him further down that dark path. And you start getting past the point of no return, unfortunately, as well, where to come back is going to be really, really difficult. And you just see that progression throughout the story in a way that, I mean, he does some really horrible things. Mm-hmm. There's some really awful practices happening on this island. It reminds me of when people say they want to introduce their child to World War II, but they're looking for a gentle way to do it. Right? Right. How, There's how do, how do you <laughs> talk about the Holocaust? I mean, how do you really talk about war? Because you have prisoners of war, you have you have soldiers, there's all these experiences, and then you have the Holocaust. Right. How do you do that? I don't know. It came to my mind as I was reading this this week that there's some really hard topics and yet it is gently and lovingly. Yeah. I don't know if it's gently and lovingly because you have concepts like coding and you have murder and you have Mm -hmm. poisoning and drugging of the king. It's almost that it's not explicit. It's not graphic. It's not explicit or graphic. Mm -hmm. So if you're thinking of movies, for example, you could see a movie about the Holocaust that's PG that would be very different from a movie about the Holocaust that's rated R. And I think mm-hmm. in our minds, we would have an understanding of what that kind of difference would be from a violence and graphic perspective, the kind of content you would see. Yes. So you're having this content where there's culling, which we can talk about, and there's murder, but the explicitness and the graphicness of it is not there. And mm-hmm. so as a child or even as an adult, I mean, I don't like to read things that are very explicit or super graphic <laughs> myself because I internalize that. Absolutely. But I could watch the progression of the character and, and both Hask and his choices and then Urchin, Padraig, Brother Fur and his choices and understand what's at stake and what's happening and what's, and what's at stake is your very soul. Husk's yes. Very soul is at stake. And yet walk away with such a sense of hope and peace and surety and seeing good conquering evil in the end. I just thought, okay, wow, that's, that's hard to do. (laughs) Yeah. I was going to say it is also very hopeful. So while there are all of these ugly things happening, there are these characters that are very childlike. They're young, there's needle, there's urchin, Mm -hmm. and they are making good choices. They're making choices where they're 
doing the right thing, even when it's hard for them, even when they don't want to, even when their voice is telling them, oh, I want to be in the spotlight. I want to mm-hmm. be off doing this great thing with these people. But, oh, this, you know, towards the end, oh, this hedgehog needs my help. So mm-hmm. I'm going to make the right choice. I'm going to help that hedgehog. And then you see it ending up with he's at the exact right place at the right time urchin is at the end of the story because he he did the right thing even when he didn't want to and he and it's very clear he doesn't want to i don't remember the exact words but he's like oh do i have to help this head dog (laughs) (laughs) Um, so it's clear it's not easy right it's not easy to make these choices but you see these characters who are who are young and who are are doing the right thing and it's very hopeful in that way one choice at a time choose choose to do the right thing for good and evil it's one choice at a time that's that's the really amazing part is that you have to be persistent in good choices again and again and again but with practice comes not perfection but comes you know a certain talent for it or a certain stamina for it shall we say so almost like a habit a habit for good versus a habit for evil in a way exactly exactly the other thing that helps is they have a community that supports those good choices like you look at that last decision um urchin made and the reason he even though he didn't want to that he Mm -hmm. made the right decision and then you see with husk he makes bad decisions because he has a partner in crime as well in the beautiful lady aspen lady aspen that he has and so you see that the truth of uh, you know, your company can either corrupt or or hold you up at times is true in this society as well. Well, and speaking to that, Lara, we look at Gleaner and Crackle. So these um, secondary characters who are the mean girls on the playground, according to Margie, and that's absolutely true, but they they diverge by the end of the book. Gleaner is locked into her worship and adulation of Lady Aspen. And I will tell you that that does not change in the books that come. And there are dire consequences because of it. But Crackle, she decides to start making better choices. She she ends up becoming a redeemed character and becomes an important redeemed character for the rest of the series. And so you see, like you're saying, these circles of influence that we have for good or for ill, we see how persuasive those relationships are and how reinforcing they are. And I said to Margie in the interview, what is the deal with Gleaner? Like she is surrounded by so much good community. And we know that Husk and Aspen are dead and gone at the end of the first book. So what, why does she not get the wake up call? And Margie said in how, you know, there was a time in her life when she was the woman in the kitchen crying and asked herself, why am I the woman in the kitchen crying all the time? And she heard very clearly, because if you weren't the woman in the kitchen crying all the time, you wouldn't be the woman in the kitchen crying all the time. Like choices, <laughs> make the choice not to be the woman in the kitchen crying that cleaner won't make that choice. Husk won't make that choice. Lady Aspen is committed to making the wrong choice again and again and again. We all know somebody like that. That's real. But the other thing I thought that was really powerful was because we talked about the powerful themes, human themes that we see. Gleaner wanted status. Husk wanted status. So you see this beautiful society, but it seems to be pretty important who works in the tower versus who works elsewhere. And what does that mean about you? Mm -hmm. And so, so you've got these mean girls 
and they start to diverge because they don't hold the same status. Right. And there's judgment on that. And I thought that that is a powerful theme. And that is something that is at play in our world, especially with social media. That's something our kids are looking at and they're feeling about themselves. uh, Like, who am I and what value am I and who's better than me? And why are they better than me? Mm-hmm. And with social media and influencers and things like that, now we can have statuses in ways that we've never had status before. Very much so. And that doesn't really change either throughout the series, because again, it's true. It's how, it's how the world works. Mm-hmm. Well, and in mismantle, that status gets kind of turned on its head where the people that you don't think in a stereotypical world would contribute to the society end up being the ones that make decisions that have, you know, altering future, altering story point, altering effects. Yeah. I love Laura. When we were talking offline, you made the comment that she makes does an interesting job of taking these different animal classes and really showcasing the dignity of each. And we typically think of moles as being, you know, underworld creatures who, you know, they don't see real well, you know, what good are they? What value do they have? And yet she really elevates them and reveals to us how important moles are. Even otters are really important and they'll be really important going forward just because she loves them. (laughs) She gives them all the best lines. (laughs) Oh, and then Apple who, you know, couldn't, you know, keep one idea in her head for five minutes yeah. yeah, and was really interested in things that nobody else was interested in <laughs> was the one who helped raise urchin and give him that sense of being part of a community that made I think that he took in as part of his identity you know seeing her as part of his community helped him see that that status isn't all there is well and it's interesting because apple's very much a commoner And so Urchin, who is going to be the hero of the story, the hero of the series is being raised up as a commoner. And he never thought that he was going to become a tower squirrel, right? Like he thought he was going to be a dock loader and had no idea that Crispin had been keeping his eye on him. And we see Crispin is a commoner. He happens to be a tower squirrel, but he he is just a commoner. He wasn't born of royalty. And Look at how important Crispin becomes. And that has its own story to be told over the next uh, four books. And when we talked to Margie about that, she said, it's important to know that the island is in the hands of commoners. And that has its own value to the story and to our culture that it isn't just the movers and shakers. I mean, the movers and shakers are people who are making good decisions, not people who have particular pedigree. Well, and especially when you have two people, Urchin and Juniper, who have no pedigree as far as they know. And so I think that's significant too. You've got two orphans there trying to find their place in the world and they do, and they become significant even though they don't know who they are. And so it's not just commoners, but it's almost completely disconnected people in some way who still have to make all the right decisions and are working toward being part of the group. Um, Mm -hmm. you know, working toward being in the circle, but it's not in a way that um, they would do anything good or bad to get into the circle. It's more about integrity. Yes. Or yes, they earn their place. Mm -hmm. I like how, even though Apple 
can't really keep an idea in her head for very long. She remembers what the island was like before Huck's influence. Yes. So she And she speaks to it frequently. <laughs> yes. This is not how it's supposed to be on this island. You know, speaking to the commoners have their strong place. Mm-hmm. You get, that's where I said, you know, you get this sense that the people, you know, the animals of the island, they're, they have certain expectations of how things were supposed to be. They're supposed to be good. And yes. it, and there's also, for me, there's this, I, like Tanya was saying, this idea of status, but also the heart. So the people that are choosing to make these good choices have this heart to look to, to help them, to support them. It's like a higher, you know, a higher good. Yes. Whereas the people that are making choices for bad are wanting to be the most important. They're yeah. not turning to the heart. They're not looking to somebody above them. They want to be in the top. Um, yeah, Gleaner was always wanting to be important. That was what was most that important was what to her. Yeah. Yeah, that's what mattered to her and same with Husk. So really we're talking about submission and humility here. Yeah. Knowing that you're not the most important mm-hmm. best equips you to a life of service, which in fact leads you into a point of being respected and appreciated and therefore important. And Apple is also an example of the importance of memory in perpetuating your culture. Mm-hmm. One of my highlighted quotes was that it's at the very end after, you know, the climax every, and things are going to be okay. You know that they're getting ready to go to a celebration. And he says, we'd forgotten what it was like to be free. Mm-hmm. Um, so had I said Padra, or I would have fought for it harder and sooner. Yeah, and, and I just thought that was really significant because it's so easy to just go along and go along until you don't realize you're going down a little bit and you've forgotten some significant things. And maybe you've made some compromises with your integrity or something like that. And it happens so gradually that you don't know it's coming. And all of a sudden, whoa, life is totally different. Things are bad. And we could have stopped it long ago if we had known it was coming. Um, that's a really mature comment to throw in at the end like that and and if you you could go by it and not think of it if you're not ready for it or you could just stop and go wow yes <laughs> we need to talk about this that reminds me of our borrowed house conversation and like the society changing mm-hmm. slowly so that it almost takes you aback when you look at it later like how did things change so much right people always say how could anyone have done that right well it didn't happen overnight no it happened by degrees. And it'll be interesting because we're going to have a discussion about the rise of Adolf Hitler in one of our other book clubs. And I'm just finishing that landmark book. And you just see how methodically it happened, but it happened when people just did not see it happening when it was happening. Yeah, that's what I saw too. And this is kind of why I was earlier kind of comparing it to a World War II type story is because you have this deterioration of the society. So you have Apple who's telling you, we didn't use to do this stuff. We didn't have all day long work parties. We worked really hard and we still had time for play and we still had food. There was no culling. Right. And yet, and you're seeing Crispin and Padra and you recognize the goodness in them. And yet they are living in a society where they have, have culling as a thing. So somehow at some point, somebody got the calling pass. And I think it must have at some level, they thought, oh, okay, maybe that makes sense. And then the next thing you know, it's more and more animals being selected. And now maybe we should start considering the elderly too. 
And I couldn't help but see similarities to things that were happening in Europe. Absolutely. World War II and how you would get to that point. Uh, Diane, that comment that Padre made at the end where he wished he would have basically intervened sooner. I thought that was so powerful. I just read that last night and I, when I finished the story and I thought, okay, that's really profound because he recognized that it needed to stop. And there's part in the book where Husk is thinking to himself about culling. And he says he had given orders that all animals for the cull were to be brought to him. Wise parents took it as an honor that their pathetic little brats should be put to death by the compassionate claw of the king's chief captain. But lately, too many of them had been left in the care of a guard and handed over to Padra. Padra was interfering as usual. He'd even got a pardon for that weedy new hedgehog. And then he says, but Padra had to learn who was in charge. So we start to see that Husk is finding joy in the killing and he himself wants to be participatory in that. And we're already seeing that Padra's intervening. And so he's stepping in. It's just powerful to see that at the end, maybe he thinks back and wishes that he would have done something more powerful sooner. But sometimes I think you don't know how evil the evil is and you can't imagine where it's going to go. And I think that's true even now and in this world. And so, you know, retrospect is always 2020, right? Yes. I thought that was really profound. And that's why I thought it could be comparative to a World War II story, because how do you talk about the Holocaust? Well, here's a small example of the Holocaust in this culling that's happening in this society. They're killing Mm -hmm. the most innocent members of of their society and the Mm -hmm. most vulnerable members of their society. And Mm I one of the things I love that Diane said is that nothing in this story feels contrived. Nothing just feels like she just stuck that in there to make a point to to you as the reader, Mm -mm. but she puts in all these things so subtly that you're like, Oh wow. But there is a scene at the ending of the book where, where Padra makes a very succinct example of the horrors of culling in this scene. There's this character that you have not met yet. And they have this spring celebration happening at the end of the book. And this is where Padra is going to take control of the situation. He's done. He's going to call Husk to task and he's taking back the island. Mm -hmm. And I don't think he has everything in place. He doesn't know exactly how that's going to happen, but he's done. Mm -hmm. And they have this beautiful spring celebration and they bring her on and she's a squirrel. She's seen and it's breathtaking. And even Lady Aspen says, oh, I just, that was so beautiful. And he said, oh yes, I was lucky to have found her. And then later he announces to the crowd that's there, he had rescued her from being cold. That was masterful. Oh, no. I was masterful. Just like, oh, right. And it didn't feel contrived. It didn't feel forced. Nope. It just felt like, oh man. Who could have imagined that an animal that was useless and was destined to die could have the most exquisite voice in the collective memory of the entire island? It was just so powerful. And then it tied right into the character that Sarah was sharing when an urchin comes back and there's this hedgehog and it's like, oh, I want to go do this important thing where Christmas is at, but there's this hedgehog and he goes mm-hmm. to rescue that hedgehog. And there's that hedgehog who also should have been cold. And he is standing up strongly and boldly and brightly to the bullies who are wanting to kill him. And even when Urchin sees him, he's like, I was going to fight them. And he's like a little pied hedgehog. <laughs> and Urchin's like, oh, okay, I know. <laughs> and <laughs> you see this hedgehog having ultimate courage and bringing hope in a really powerful way. And again, it was, it was one who was blind and who was hanging out with the mole. And who was, again, a hero. 
Well, and like Laura was saying, we think of them, we write the moles off. We don't think of them as being important. And they are, as Diane knows, essential in book two. And um, in book three, so heroic again. And the mole, the moles are amazing. But to see hope being essentially raised like a mole, even though he's a hedgehog, and he has gifts that will serve the island well for all five books, because there is something to be learned from each other, even when our gifts and talents are different. So you might be born a hedgehog, but that doesn't mean that you shouldn't respect and try to do what the moles can do. You know, I love that. I'm so excited for you guys to read the other books. <laughs> Not that the swan characters were really funny. There's lots more about the swans. Yeah. <laughs> but was I the only one who would forget which creature the different characters were? I'm so glad you brought that okay. up. Because <laughs> I would always say, wait, no, what? And the kids were like, mom, it's an otter. The kids had no trouble on top of that. So you've got Hope, who's being raised underground. And so he's raised like a mole. And then you're, when you meet Juniper, Juniper was raised by otters, even though he's a squirrel. And so I'm like, wait, who's what? <laughs> it's very, very confusing as to who is what. And so I'm okay. glad you mentioned that because <laughs> in the original books, there's no cast list, but it was Marky's idea and Jill agreed. And so if you have the Purple House Press edition in the front matter, there is a cast list that says the otters, the squirrels, et cetera. So you know who is what. <laughs> so that was Margie's. Yeah, that's an edition that's specific only to the Purple House Press books. But if you don't have those and you want those, I think we have a picture of it on our website. If not, we'll make sure that we do. Make yourself a little bookmark. Okay, I really want to talk about the themes that we can see that are similar to Macbeth and Othello because that stood out to me so powerfully mm -hmm. primarily Macbeth but more subtly Othello mm -hmm. I loved that I loved being able to see like the play between Lady Aspen and Husk mm -hmm. and where Husk we know that he kills the prince mm -hmm. and he is the murderer of the prince and then he has visions and dreams of the prince he's being haunted he by that which is haunted. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And he's not actually being haunted. I think that that's such an important distinction. These are dreams. He is, becomes an insomniac because the dreams are so terrifying to him. But the point is they're all in his head. It's not happening outwardly. It's happening inwardly. And so then when he does see hope covered in berries, it's just complete, complete break for him complete I mean it would destroy me too if I were you know that insane at that point and well it should and I think that's part of it is that so there's something of a conscience there yes there's, there's this conscience I do think there may also be again like we were talking about there's this heart there's this higher power at this prophecy about the flying squirrel so that obviously came from outside of him Mm -hmm. And maybe this vision that he has that shows up at the end was partly in his conscience and also partly just this higher power, I think. Yes. Again, it's not magical. It's not um, anything like that. But I do just got this sense that there's also this this higher power on this island that is having its influence in the story. But it is also primarily 
he's going insane from this evil that's consuming him. Maybe like the the act of the Holy Spirit pressing in on him, a yeah. reality. Mm-hmm. And we will see in the next book um, another priest who is evil. We will see that the closest thing we get to witchcraft in the series, but it is totally black. It's black magic all the way. It's actually not powerful, um, but it is. So just to, to contrast that, what we will see in the next book is an evil priest performing evil things versus in this book, what's happening with Husk is more on his own. But definitely, I agree with you, Sarah, that there is definitely a working of the spirit going on versus in the next book where we're going to see things happening to people. But, and there is a po- an evil power as well in the story in yes. this dark place that he goes to. Yes. That is not just himself. It, it, it's an actual evil power that well, there's is been kind of a history behind it. It's, generations have yeah. worshipped evil there. And it was born from evil. Yes. Right. It was born from evil acts. Yes. And in it, that is calling to him. So I think that's as powerful as that you actually do have a deity and a good mm-hmm. power and you actually have an evil power. And I think Husk was seduced by that. And he wants throughout the book, you see that he's accumulating power. He's accumulating wealth and he wants more of it. And he's now willing to cull for it. Mm-hmm. He's willing to murder for it. He's willing to wrongly accuse people for it. He's willing to drug for it. Mm-hmm. So he just continues to be willing to do anything. And I think, again, that's like Macbeth. He starts mm-hmm. being willing to do anything for power. Mm-hmm. And that, that was that was fascinating. Well, and like with Macbeth, with the witches or the sisters who have this, this pot of this brew of evil, I think that's very much the chamber. I think that chamber is a place in which evil has been, uh, it has been stirred and fed and it has grown and it's a very real physical and spiritual thing that happens there. And that's why I was so delighted because of Margie's liturgical Christianity. I was so delighted to see that space being cleansed. I think so often today we feel like, okay, we've defeated the bad guy. We can move on. No, 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 no. There is still an echo of that evil present. We need to cleanse that space. And the only way to cleanse it is with prayer and fasting and blessed candles assist in that prayer and that fasting. It's keeping vigil for good and letting evil making it clear to evil that this is not a place for it. It is not welcome here. And that's why I really appreciated that imagery. And it becomes, this chamber becomes a a stronghold. In all five books, something important happens in this chamber. It becomes a stronghold for the island and for the followers of the heart in one way or another. Well, I thought symbolically, it also spoke to truth because you cannot hide or bury darkness. It will come out. Mm -hmm. So it is better to shine light on things. It's better to admit when you've done wrong. It's better to seek forgiveness. Mm -hmm. All of those things bring forth goodness, truth, and light, but burying it or pretending it doesn't exist. So we know that in their history, 
they kept it a secret. They buried it. They thought it wouldn't become a problem, but it, you can't do that. You have to bring forth the light and expose the darkness and expose the evil in order to dissipate it. So I thought it was kind of symbolic in that sense as well, and was really powerful. And it doesn't just come out and say that you just have to think about that. You know, you think yeah. about it and think, okay, they're good. They're going to bring, he, Burr is literally going to take the light into the darkness Yes, and dissipate the darkness. And Tanya, in one of the future books, a very important secret about somebody's past is revealed in that space. So yeah. just what you're saying, secrets cannot hide when light is shown on them and secrets, secrets are not good. <laughs> so we need to bring things to light so that we can redeem that which needs to be redeemed and we can deal with that which needs to be dealt with and we can uh, celebrate that which is worth worthy of celebrating and and that happens in there coming soon <laughs> <laughs> so what about Othello what do you want to say about that before yeah so I haven't read Othello for a really long time so we're going to go off of my feelings of what I think Othello is about <laughs> so in my mind Othello is a lesson in if anyone would have said anything to anybody at any time about anything, it all would have been prevented. <laughs> that is Othello in my mind. Okay, to me, that is British TV in a, a <laughs> nutshell. There. Think about it. Pride and Prejudice would have ended in like five minutes if somebody right. had just spoken up. <laughs> all of Jane Austen. All of Jane Austen. Nobody saying what they should have said. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> So they, Most sitcoms too, American <laughs> sitcoms, that, that drives me crazy. Just, just tell the truth and it'll be over with, right? So I like, think K-dramas are the same way, right, Tanya? Yes, K-dramas are the same way. There's this one scene where Urchin overhears Padra talking to essentially someone who's working with Hask, so an enemy. Mm -hmm. And it says... He didn't even see Urchin as he was talking over his shoulder to Granite a few steps behind him. Granite being an enemy working mm -hmm. for Husk. I'm afraid he's a dead loss, Padra was saying airily. He's been with me for months now and he's completely untrainable. He waved a paw, turned, saw Urchin and Needle and greeted them with his usual, usual cheerfulness. Is something wrong? Urchin couldn't say anything. He was too stunned. He knew he had something to say to Padra, but the words he just heard had knocked it out of him. So Urchin takes what he heard from Padra, not understanding why Padra might be saying that. And he, A, assumes it's about him, and B, assumes that this is how Padra truly feels about him. And then he plays, that is playing inside of him as the next parts of the story play out. Right. And that affects some things. And I thought, Oh, that's so Othello-ish in my <laughs> mind. And you, and you also see it where the king is being drugged. So admittedly, it's kind of going to be hard for him to, A, he's lost his son. He loses his wife. He's being drugged. Mm -hmm. But he's also being whispered to consistently by Husk. Mm -hmm. Things that are not necessarily wrong, but not necessarily true. And it makes it easy for him to make assumptions about people that maybe he wouldn't have thought that about previously in the past. So 
he he's able to maybe it makes it easier for him to think less of Padra when maybe he wouldn't have done that previously because of the whisperings of Husk was another was another example where I thought it was Othello-like. I know Othello-ish and Macbeth-ish are not terms, but that's how oh, I felt. They are now. <laughs> they are now. We just made it though. <laughs> for me, it felt very much like Theoden and Wormtongue. Yes. That same, you know, where he's whispering in his ear. Yes. So I, I'm not as familiar with the Shakespeare as I am with Tolkien. And but to me, the the scenes where Husk was going mad felt very uh Edgar Allan Poe. One of the big things I took away from this was the society seemed to be kind of on that cusp of awakening, kind of the faith versus reason tension. But I thought the story did a great job of complementing both that you need both that. And, and when you say that in a future series, there's a priest who's evil again, that speaks to you need your reason with your faith, Mm. but you also need your faith with your reason. There are times that your senses aren't enough, Mm. like when they're running underground and can't see, but Mm. then there are times that your, your faith can be manipulated I thought this book did a really good job of keeping that balance. I love what you say about the Holy spirit is still speaking truth because I I think you're right. I think that that is one of the things that she does really masterfully and can only be done by somebody who actually believes these things. This is, this is her voice coming through clearly is that you're right. We need to have supreme faith that has to override everything. We have to ultimately trust in let's put ourselves in the, in the shoes of urchin urchin has to ultimately trust in the heart and trust that the heart, um, will not allow his conscience to lead him wrong, but you, he still needs to carefully evaluate what he's seeing because the heart is showing him things and, and, um, finding that place where he feels peace because when he overhears Padra, he doesn't feel peace. He feels anxiety. But the heart doesn't speak to us through anxiety. The heart speaks to us through peace, even if it's a difficult thing, even if it's a tragic thing. We still have that comfort that comes from the spirit to say this is true. And it presses in on you in a way that's very confirming. And I think she she manages that well. And I especially think we'll see that in the second book. Juniper, who you don't know yet, is a very spiritually sensitive soul. And he is... Um, he is wildly sensitive. He has physical reactions to spiritual things. And that's where we have this, this dynamic spiritual character who is totally different than brother furry. And yet they have the same love for the heart. And then you have this very corrupt evil priest who is, you know, very about trickery and black magic and all of that. And so I think she, she does really find that, that, perfect place of harmony where it's faith and reason working together appropriately to lead the characters rightly. I was really delighted that the priest was so good in this book. Me too. Going into the story and reading it, I just kept in this back of my mind like, oh, is this going to be a bad priest? Because I think it just happens so often in stories. And that wasn't this. Like, Fur was somebody that they could trust who was working for the good. And I got to the end of the story and was just so thankful that that's how the story went. (laughs) He was a good character. (laughs) 
And it's beautiful because the, as the series progresses, we have more who join him. And so the, the priestly class is very interesting and very noble and beautiful. And the evil priest is markedly evil from the first moment you see him. There's no trickery. He is an evil priest mentoring an evil king. And it's just blatantly evil. But Sarah's is a real legitimate concern because I was expecting what we get a lot of times where the priest is the sort of old fashioned, silly, you know, maybe he used to, yeah, he probably probably has some good points, but we don't think like that anymore. And the end gets discounted, sort of a bumbling, you know, yeah, he means well, but kind of a character. And I was kind of expecting that. Mm. The other thing that I really love about Fur is that he is an elderly character. They speak to that numerous times with kind of wanting to protect him about having to go up and down the stairs a million times. Mm -hmm. And he's like, oh, I got this. Mm -hmm. And you recognize that he's been around for a while. And also that the traditions have been passed king to king and priest to priest. So he knows the history of, of the island really well. But what I love is that everyone's coming to him because of his wisdom so both Padre and Crispin come to him and he often is mentoring them in this story. No, you need to bring Urchin in. You need to tell him he can take it even though he's young or no, you need to X, Y, Z. So there's this mentoring process that's happening. And then you find out that they're starting to consider calling of the elderly, which would have to include fur, right? You know, by logic, it would have to. And I just, I love that this society recognizes the value of the elderly who bring the wisdom, who've been around for a long time, and that you have those, I guess what I would call middle agers, which are Crispin and Padra and Aaron. And then you have the younger ones like Needle and Hope and Urchin, and he sees the value of all and they see the value of him. So you have this circle of respect going all directions. That's mm-hmm. the society I want to live in. That's the society <laughs> I want to see in my own life. Roll was also respected on the island. Even Husk, he wanted to kill Fur, but he wouldn't mm-hmm. because he knew he would not be legitimate king on the island if Fur did not, I don't know if it was anoint or like, you know, sort of approve of like, yes, this is the next king. So he had a position that was respected. Well, and, and there are, going back to that tension, between the spiritual being physical and sort of ethereal in the next book. So setting up for our next book club in the next book, Fur's role of being in charge, caretaking, who is and is not king or queen is made much more explicit in that there is the heart has a device by which the, the ruler cannot rule without the high priest's blessing and it's made obvious and it's not about personal prejudice there is something that happens and if it doesn't happen it's not a legitimate ruler and so i i think that that is another interesting thing that she does um but tanya what you're saying about the elderly i also just want to tease that the elderly are very important in this series and will continue to be so all the way through. And we will see the care and keeping of the, of the young, the sick and the elderly as all of these different people are, or characters are going through uh, life challenging illness or injury 
um, or um, even when they are preparing for death, because we will have characters who we love die through the course of this series through a variety of means. And I won't spoil that, but I will tell you that that's, she's very clear about what kind of respect needs to be shown to people and what kind of care needs to be extended to them. And it's exactly like you said, it's the kind of society I want to live in. Sarah and Tanya and Laura, thank you so much for sharing your afternoon with us. This was fun because I don't know if we can say it too many times, Sarah, that book clubs are just one of our favorite things to do. <laughs> this is true. <laughs> and um, we love books and we loved this book in particular. So uh, we really appreciate your time and your enthusiasm. Thank you for having us. Yay. All right. Thank you, ladies. Bye. Bye. Bye.